Amen. You may be seated. And I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. As we continue our study of this letter written by Paul, Timothy, and Silas to the Thessalonian church. And as you do so, I just want to thank you on behalf of my family for the opportunity to spend the last couple of weeks visiting other family members and taking some time off. Um, I want to thank Jeremy and Billy for their faithful preaching of the word, um, and uh, just and we are grateful. We are very refreshed, um, and if we didn't have a son that wasn't feeling well, we'd all be here this morning, uh, but it is good to be with you. It's good to be back. Um, we are um, overjoyed at being with our people uh, today. And it's a delight to be back in God's Word and to be back in this series. Um, you know, if you have been with us since the beginning of this series, at least in Second Thessalonians, chapter 1 serves as a greeting, as, as most uh, letters of Paul do. Um, here's who is writing, here's why we are grateful, here's what we're going to pray for. And then chapter 2, typically, or toward the end of chapter 1, marks a shift. And we're going to see a pretty hard shift this morning where we get to the meat of what is going on. This is what is affecting the church. This is what's causing this letter to be written. This is why it is necessary and important and beneficial for you today. That was true of the, the church in Thessalonica and that is true of us this morning. And in fact, that issue has to do yet again with the return of Christ. This is a theme we saw in 1 Thessalonians that is picked up or continued in 2nd over a year difference in the letters being written. And yet the same topic is the focus of the attention because it needs that much attention. There's still confusion. There's still uncertainty. There's false teaching, which we'll get to today. But that does not throw Paul and the writers off guard. That does not surprise them. In fact, they calmly and rationally this morning give us conditions. Okay, you're unsure about the return of Christ. Here is what must take place. And unless these conditions do not take place, then Christ cannot return. So that you're left with hope and with certainty and with assurance that you will not be left behind, so to speak. But let's not hear it from me. Let's hear it from the Lord this morning. I invite you to turn your attention with me to our passage at hand, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to read for us the first 12 verses. Now concerning the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, 
so that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false sign and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever and it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us go before him now in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Our Lord and our God, as we stand before your word, we often respond in different ways. Out of fear, because it displays to us how holy and righteous you are. Maybe out of confusion, for we do not understand its teaching. Maybe out of joy, for we look forward to what is to come. Father, I pray this morning that you would grant clarity to us, that we might understand your word and its meaning, that we might apply it to our lives and the lives of others, that you might transform us here and now today by the power of your word. You have promised it as a means of grace. You have promised it as a tool to give us exactly what we need to live a holy life before you. And so we humbly submit ourselves to you and to your word this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by looking at our passage, by quoting another passage, one from the Apostle Peter, who was gifted with the supernatural ability to proclaim God's word and truth to all people. Listen to what he writes. Beloved, Brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in hearing Peter say, sometimes Paul is hard to understand. We may find Paul hard to understand this morning. The idea of the man of lawlessness can be quite confusing. At the same time, I completely and fully believe in the sufficiency of Scripture And so we're going to dive in this morning believing that God's word is true, that God's word is beneficial, and that God's word speaks to us no matter what time, season, or place we find ourselves in. And so we are going to jump into a difficult passage trusting God this morning. And we're going to do so with the thesis that Paul gives us in verse 1. Paul tells us why he writes this passage. He tells us his purpose in writing this passage for us this morning. He says this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's what he wants us to know about today. That's what he wants us to understand. 
the coming of Christ and our being gathered to him. In fact, he will take the next several sections of scripture to unpack these two major points. And so we're going to begin down that path this morning by getting five tools. Five tools. And the purpose of these tools will answer these questions, but will also guide us in dealing with false teaching. Because what has started this process? There are those who are proclaiming things that are not true. And so the apostle writes to help the church unpack truth from falsehood and to understand the coming of Christ and are being gathered to him. And so we're going to look at each of these this morning to see how they serve as a roadmap. And not just on this topic. If we rightly understand these points, we can rightly understand how to protect against all forms of false teaching. Not just on the return of Christ, but against any method that Satan uses against us. What are these tools? Well, let's see. First, we're told to be firm in the light found in verse 2. Secondly, we're warned, do not be deceived by false teaching in verse 3. Thirdly, we will learn that the way in which we do so is by remembering what you've been taught. We'll see that in verse 5. Fourthly, we must accept these truths by resting in the sovereignty of God through verses 6 through 10. And then finally, we will conclude by remembering the lie so that we can know that which is true against that which is false in 11 and 12. And so a lot going on in this passage. We're going to unpack as much as we can this morning using this as a roadmap, and that is our thesis. So let's dive in, shall we? The topic of Christ's return has been of great interest to this church. It was mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. And we know that false teachers have also tried to put their influence into this topic. They have tried to get in and it's had a dangerous effect. Teaching that Jesus' return has already taken place has led some in the church to live with lethargy. To refuse to work and to not live each day as children of God. As God had called them to be. Because of this, Paul and the writers ask, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now look, we all know how difficult it can be sometimes to receive information that seems conflicting from a seemingly trusted source. The Thessalonians had heard the truth. We know that from 1 Thessalonians. We also know that, and we'll see it later in this text, Paul has preached this to them even before he wrote that letter. And so truth after truth after truth has been proclaimed to them. And now they're faced with this falsehood. And it looks credible. He says, if it looks like it's from us, if it seems like it's from a spirit, if it seems like it's from a trusted source... Don't trust it. Don't be deceived by this. Don't let this sway you away from what we've clearly taught. You know, the Apostle Paul uses his strongest language in all of his writings to combat those who would proclaim false teaching. One of my favorite passages, Galatians 1, 8 to 9. 
even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, if I can be so bold and we look at the Greek there, literally translated, there's a better way to say that. It would be damned to hell. If I or an angel or anyone else preach a gospel that does not line up with the gospel you have received and heard from Jesus Christ, let him be damned to hell. The strongest language we get from the Apostle Paul. And then he repeats himself in case you didn't hear it. As we've said it before, we say it now again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, myself included, let him be accursed. Do not be swayed by false teaching. Do not let it take over you. Do not let it consume your life. We, we could go to Psalm 1 to see this in the positive. What is the man of God in Psalm 1? The man of God in Psalm 1 is a tree firmly planted by streams of water that give it nourishment and life. It's not quickly swayed by the winds of this world. Paul is saying here to be like that tree. Don't be swayed by competing information. Stay firm. Trust what you have already heard and can see and can deduce from the scriptures. This is our first tool, and this is essential in facing false teaching. And it's not an if we face false teaching, but it's a when. When you face false teaching, do not be swayed by it. If it's not in accord with God's word, which means you've got to be checking God's word, let it flow past you like wind through the leaves and branches of a tree. And this can only be done if we're in firm and solid ground. The tree that is not in firm and solid ground will not stand. The storms of this life will cause irreparable damage and ultimately can destroy that tree. But if the tree is firm in its foundation, it can withstand much. That foundation for us is the Lord. And so we start here. We must start here. This has to be the beginning of our understanding of false teaching and the return of Christ. We say, do not be swayed by the winds of this world. And don't be deceived by them either. Look with me at verse 3, that we're not only called to not be swayed, but we're called to not be deceived. And that's what Paul and his fellow writers call the information given. Deceit. It's false information given as supposed to be truth. The church has been taught on when Christ will return, but they'll receive a refresher course in this text so that they are certain and clear. So what will it look like? A man of lawlessness will come. He will cause a rebellion against God and against religion. This man of lawlessness will assume the position of God. Look at how it is stated. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. If you want to know when Jesus is coming back, it is after this takes place. Now, aside of Aside from who this man of lawlessness is, this is our litmus test. 
If we cannot discern that this has happened, Jesus cannot come back. Also means you haven't missed it, which is the problem that the church is facing. The church is afraid that they've missed it. And so Paul says, well, here's your checklist. Run down the list, and if somebody meets all of these qualifications, then there's a chance you've missed it. But if that's not taken place, then you're okay. Stand firm, keep the faith, keep going. Now, I know you want me to tell you definitively who this man of lawlessness is. And I will respond to you, I can't. But I can tell you this. Throughout every century, each people, each group really has taken the worst of their society and put them up against this list. You can go all the way back to Emperor Nero. You can go all the way back to the time of the Crusades. You can go all the way back to the Reformation when they were certain that this was the Pope. And you can look through each epic of history at really the worst, Hitler, Osama bin Laden, whoever it may be, and you can see that you'll find people saying, now that's the man, that's the man, that's the man. Well, it hasn't been. It can't be, as we'll find out here in a moment. How do we know that? Because Christ hasn't returned. What I'm saying to you is there's a worse one coming. That's what we get from this text. But it also serves as a reminder we've still got our hope ahead. We've still got what is to come. We still look forward to what will take place. Once again, listen to the characteristics of this person. Son of destruction, exalting himself, opposing himself against every so-called God, not just Christianity, but every so-called God or object of worship, taking his seat in the temple of God, claiming himself to be God. That's a pretty thorough list, and it helps us. It does help us. Even in the uncertainty on the specifics or the particulars or the when, this does benefit us. Why? It benefits us because we now know what to be prepared for. We know the game plan of the enemy. We know what the enemy is going to do, how they're going to do it, and what it's going to look like played out. It's like being able to watch a game before it happens and know every single play the enemy is going to make. What does that allow you to do to combat or contradict everything they're going to do step for step? That's what Paul wants us to be able to do here is the church. That's what he's telling us. Church, be ready. Here's the playbook. Don't be swayed by false teaching. Don't listen to those who claim to know truth but do not. That is lawlessness. And that is the work of Satan and this man of lawlessness. So what is our defense? We see the play. We know what's coming. What do we do? We trust the word of God. We do that by remembering what we've been taught. Look with me at verse 5. Paul talks to the church now as a father to his children. Do you not remember? Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, we don't know what all Paul said to the church. We don't have a record of his being with them when the church was planted. We have 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We can get a a little bit of information from the book of Acts. But we don't know what all was said. But we do know from this right here that when Paul was with them, he talked to them about the last days. That that topic did not escape his teaching. 
And I hope that you don't hear me saying this morning, I, I really pray that this is not the case. I'm not saying that this topic's not important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on this at all, that we simply should just have faith and trust God and let each day be what it is. No, Scripture tells us to be ready. Scripture tells us what to look for. Scripture tells us what is coming. And so whether we can define or determine all of the intricacies of exactly what's going to happen, in that, yes, we do need to let go and let God. But in the call for each of us, to examine our hearts and to orient our life in accord with God's word and to remember that which we have been taught. The scripture is clear. We should focus our attention on the return of Christ. We should listen and study and pray and work through and discuss the word of God so that when the time comes, we can do what? Remember. You can only remember that which you have learned. And many of you know that for many of us, unless you have an eidetic memory, which some of you might, you have to learn it frequently and often and um, in close proximity to when you need it. Um, I used to love math. I have not taken a math course since freshman year of college in 08. Um, a student came to me last year um, for help in trig. And I just stared blankly at the page. I had all A's in math. In fact, I was going to minor in math in college. I knew math. And they put that in front of me, and I, I just, you got the wrong teacher. I said, I can talk to you about the Trinity. We can talk about the Council of Trent. We can talk about what Paul is writing in the book of Galatians, but I have no clue, no idea. I, I did learn that. I recognized the shapes and the, and the formula and, and what needed to be done, but I could not apply it to that situation at all. Well, the same goes for the Word of God. You will remember, you will retain, and be able to, to expound upon that which you have frequently and often and most recently put into your memory. And so when Paul writes almost a year later to this church where this topic of Christ's return still finds itself pushing against them, he says, remember, remember that you've been taught and that you've heard and trust the word of God that it is beneficial. As Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. This is our defense. This is our playbook. We've heard the enemy's playbook. Here is ours. Let me just tell you right now. Ours is better. Ours is more complete. We have more data. We have the evidence. And in fact, we already have the victory. It's like you've watched through to the end knowing we're going to win. So now you know the enemy's playbook, you know our playbook, and you're just running through the place, through the power of God and through submission to his word. That's where we find ourselves. Are we in the third or fourth quarter? I can't say. But I can tell you, we're going to win. I know that with absolute certainty. And what does that do for us? What does knowing the enemy's plan, what does knowing our plan, what does recognizing deceit and not being swayed by it do for us? It causes us to rest in the sovereignty of God. Probably the greatest tool we have in understanding 
the return of Christ and defending against false teaching. Let's look at our next section. It's really verses 6 through 10. And I admit, talking about cosmic level issues can quickly become disheartening. It's, it's hard. It's, it's hard for us as humans to consider the truths of God due to our finite nature. Talking about the infinite as the finite is difficult. There's also what's known as the creature-creation distinction. We're not God. We're what's created. And so in some ways, that makes a difficulty that we won't be able to overcome. And we admit that, but it doesn't make it easier for us. What does is remembering God is sovereign. We may or may not be able to predict who the man of lawlessness is. We may or may not be able to understand when our time will come to pass from this life into death or Christ coming to meet us in the air. But we do know and we can know that each day God is sovereign. Let me tell you something beautiful. The man of lawlessness submits himself to the sovereignty of God. Even the man of destruction and elsewhere in scripture, the antichrist or anti-Christian has to and must submit himself to the sovereignty of God. Listen to it. You know what is restraining him now so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all of his power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. I cannot tell you what is currently restraining the man of lawlessness. Commentators have speculated different governments, different religions, uh, the power of Christianity, its, its pervasiveness around the world, but there's debate on that. What is currently withholding the man of lawlessness from having control? From a human perspective, I can't answer that question. But from a biblical perspective, I can. Until his time, when is his time determined? When God says it is. God is withholding, keeping at bay the man of lawlessness and Satan. And this is the ultimate play. This is his great plan with all of Satan's power and false signs and wonders and deception. His greatest attack apart from the death of Jesus Christ against the church and against the Christian. But I don't want you to miss something so beautiful in this text. Look again at what is said. Verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed. So the man of lawlessness comes, right? Comma. Same sentence. Same verse. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing all of his powers. In the same sentence that he is revealed, he is destroyed. In the same sentence that he is brought to power, he is brought to nothing. In the same sentence that he is made to be much, he is destroyed at the return of Christ. That's all that the man of lawlessness can do. Even he, in all of his might, in all of his power, in all of Satan's strength, all he can do is mark the coming of Jesus. That's God's sovereignty. 
That's God's sovereignty over our lives. That's God's promise to the church. And ultimately, that's God's glory. God allows this to take place so he can be on full display, so that Jesus Christ can conquer all enemies, all forms of false religion, all forms of disobedience, all forms of lawlessness by the very word of his mouth. It is so, and it will be. It may mean that life gets really hard for us, says the church. There may be some very dark days ahead. In fact, I promise it. But hasn't that been the way since the beginning? Didn't Jesus tell us that that's how it was going to happen? That's what was going to come? Didn't he tell us that this is what to expect? Yes, yes he has, and yes he did. But even that is just the backdrop so that his glory can be on full display and that all wickedness and evil will be leveled to nothing. Now the only way we can look at this and be dismayed is to buy into the lie. To buy into the lie that either God can't do it, that he won't do it, that I have missed it, or he's not good enough. We see that in our last section. And really, what we're talking about today, Satan's most frequently used tool is to worship anything other than the creator. To worship the creature, to worship ourself, our jobs, whatever it may be, our hobbies, to love this world more than the God who made it. But God has a plan for that too. God has a plan for that because what do we find in our text? What does it say? God sends them judgment. Even now, God sends them judgment. And how does he do it? Through confusion. He gives them delusions so that they cannot differentiate between the truth and the lie. Or to put it very differently, and I, I think this is really helpful to understand. Because if you look at that, you may find yourself going, well, that's not fair, God. That doesn't sound very nice of you. What does God do? God gives the people of sinfulness the very sin that they so want and desire. God removes his hand of protection from them and allows them to chase the very things that they want, which leads to their judgment and destruction. And these aren't innocent people. None of us are innocent people. And so we can't say, God, that's not fair. No, the only fair thing is to let us all go. That would be fair. We're told in verse 10, lest we still be uncomfortable with this, they refused to love truth and so be saved. They looked at the truth and they turned their back on it and refused to be saved. Paul is telling us and the church that Satan is going to lie and deceive in order to steer us toward destruction. We know that it is coming. We know how it is coming. And that will prepare us for what will happen. We're not blindly walking around hoping not to stumble. We know what we will face. And even more, we know that God is going to confuse our enemies as they walk before us so that they cannot understand truth from that which is false, so that ultimately his sovereign plan will be carried out to perfection. Now, let me admit, you may have many questions about this passage 
and about what Paul is talking about even after our time this morning. That's okay, I do too. And that's okay. If you'd like to talk more about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. We can discuss them together. But I do hope that you have just seen how God is providing us both the information and the tools needed to live today, tomorrow, and each day until Christ returns, which is a set date according to a set plan and a set time. And he tells us these things so that we're not called off guard. We're called to trust God and live faithful lives. We're not to worry about tomorrow, for we know each day is in the Father's hands. We're not swayed by false teaching or deception because we're rooted in the truth already given to us by God's word so that we might walk in them. And together, we stand for truth in a fallen world until that time in which Christ returns, makes all things new, and casts down lawlessness in all of his works by the power of his word. Brothers and sisters, you see a lot of lawlessness around you. There's a lot of sin in this world, a lot of heartache and a lot of destruction. Don't worry. The day is coming. And it is coming soon. When Christ returns, the word of his mouth, he will level it all to nothingness. And on that day, we will rejoice as we're gathered to him and celebrate the risen Savior every day for all eternity. And that is God's sovereign plan for your life today and in the days to come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the passages that we go to quickly when we have doubts or uncertainty. We thank you for the passages that we skip over or say we'll come back to later because they're difficult to our ears. We thank you for the passages in which we don't understand at all. You have promised in your word that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And so we thank you for the truth found today. I pray that as we face false teaching in this world, and especially false teaching on the return of Christ, you would give us boldness and clarity. That you would use the truth found in this text and others to help us defend ourselves. Father, be with us, for the enemy knows our weaknesses and is quick to attack and to beat us down. But we know a day is coming, and a day is coming soon in which all of that will be leveled to nothing the great power, the wonders, the deceit, the deception, the lawlessness will all be set aside for your holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. And we thank you, O Lord. Until that day comes, help your church. Be with each one as we struggle through the days ahead, striving to live holy lives, falling down and needing help getting back up. Constantly pick us up, O Lord, and place people around us to do so as well, that we might walk this path together until you call us or bring us home. We ask all of this in the beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.